Hello, and welcome to AIGA's Fireside Chat. Thank you for joining us. Please connect with us and share your thoughts. Hashtags for this Fireside or AIGA Design and Future of Design. It is my pleasure to welcome Benny F. Johnson, AIGA's Executive Director, and today's guest, Rick Griffith, Chair of AIGA's 2022 Design Conference. Benny, Rick. Thank you, Amy, and welcome all to our <laughs> Fireside Chat today. Today is an extremely special one. And I apologize now we've got clouds covering lights moving all around in, in DC. But I want to start as really a point of departure. But you'll soon learn that Rick is so much more. Rick is by definition a graphic designer and master letterpress printer. But Rick is so much more. He's an advocate for design. He's really an explorer in many ways. His work is an erudite exploration of language, history, politics, science, music, ethics, and it's focused on our world today and the future, and it's relevant. He's known as a passionate advocate for design. Uh, we've tapped him to serve as our chair of this year's design conference, and Rick's journey is an incredible one. He was born and raised in Southeast London, and then immigrated to the U.S. in the late 80s, where he hung out in my hometown of Washington, D.C. And it's the record stores, if we date ourselves, the music places that turned him into graphic design, that turned him onto graphic design. And it was a short career on Madison Avenue that really served, once again, as a departure point, as a launching pad to fund his first practice. And it's his love of design and his partner that sustain him in his design practice matter. For over the last two decades in Denver, and it's grown to be a really beyond definition design consultancy, print shop, workshop, and retail bookstore in the, in the Denver area. Uh, I could go on and on about Rick's service to community and focus on art and design and the, the power that he's taken from his journey. So when you think about him traveling all over the world, it's not a surprise today that he's not joining us from Denver, but he's joining us from Switzerland today. So I'd like to welcome to the fireside, my dear friend and brother, Rick Griffin. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. Just keep my hands warm right here by the fire. <laughs> you, you keep your hands warm. I'm going to start off a little differently. You're never in the same place twice or the place that I expect you. And I'm just going to open up that. When I, when I really think about the, the way that you've navigated the, the world, you're always somewhere different, but it always feels right. Well, I do go to the same place over and over and over again. It's kind of like a loop. I, mm -hmm. This is my fifth time to Naples, uh, Switzerland. And, um, and I, I definitely come back. But what I think you're getting at is that, like, I do a lot of travel. Right. And the, the idea of traveling is also part of that sense of community. Like, right. I really enjoy the letterpress community. I really enjoy the community of intellects that I'm a part of. And so I travel to participate in the lives of my friends. And right. also, I know that it's a safe place to get some work done if I need to. So right. behind me... There are several 19th century printing presses. I mean, you know, there's, there's about seven printing presses in, in this particular um, yeah. compounds that, that my friend has. And so I can get work done if I have to. But right now, this is, this is the work of the day. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to my friend Megan, who just had a baby, who um, is right. just enjoying uh, new motherhood. So congratulations, Megan. Um, the, yeah, I travel a lot, but I'm also like a proud member of a lot of communities. Right. And so that is exciting to me to be interloping. Let, let's talk a bit about community in Denver. So Denver became mm -hmm. your chosen community 20 years ago, yeah. you know, starting Matter. So, so talk a bit about Matter because you are the only design studio, manufacturing and revolutionary <laughs> bookstore. Endeavor is a great way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, it, the when when the studio was founded in 1999, I had already been in Denver for a few years. I had already um, got married, and uh, 
I think we we just began having kids. So our first our first child was born, and the the idea behind Matter came with my original business partner Jason Otero. It came from the idea of just stuff, relevance, you know, um, and the imperative to to be engaged. Mm-hmm. And I had already bought my first printing press at that point in time, and so. I was moving through the paces of basically like learning how to run my first letterpress, learning how to run my first, my, my first printing press. And, and it seemed like a really good idea. It was all born from the work of Muriel Cooper, who um, was in charge of the visible language lab at MIT, who I had read about years previous and was so inspired by her that I was like, if graphic designers need to be close to the means of production in order to understand typography well, then let's count me amongst that. And I'm going to get a printing press and I'm going to try and unpack why that was so true. And then it's taken me 20 something years so far to kind of continue to unpack that idea. But along the way, we've made our own stationary products. We've, um, made prints and, and have, have got prints in for all sorts of purposes, including the purpose of protest and community. Right. Um, but then, but also decided that um, with my, with my partner, Deborah Johnson, we decided to, to create a, a community focused social justice bookstore that has design in it and design right. at the center of it as well. And so it's a design bookstore, but it's also a social justice bookstore with um, books uh, by and for and uh, uh, about uh, queer lives, black lives, indigenous lives, uh, females, etc. And so, so that's, that's our basis of action in Denver is the, the, the storefront is right. also a store is a bookstore. Yeah. What was that? First reaction when you unveiled this concept and you kind of rolled it out into into this community space. Well, the I suppose the reaction was pretty soft because no one knew New, what I was right. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it was like that's what I was wondering. What? I was like, you introduce it, and it's like, what are you doing again? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people were like, "What are you doing again?" and and they didn't have a real reason to come by until we threw our famous annual parties where we would invite the entire community over to look at the prints from that year and so on and so forth. And that's how we actually got reputation was from throwing one party a year, the second Friday of December. And, um, and that's how people got to know us. And that was pretty good. It was really good times. We were on the fourth story of a nightclub in downtown Denver and the elevator that we had used to carry uh, carriages. So it was huge. It was a huge elevator. Okay. People would, you know, so it's weird. <laughs> so, so you're telling me that matter was the after party. Matter was the party and the after party. Yeah. At one point. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, when, when we think about kind of the value of community and art together, what are some of the lessons that you've learned in your time at Denver? You know, you start off with a soft mm-hmm. opening, but, but then things evolve and grow, right? So what are some of the, the, the value that you've learned? I, I think for me, the idea of, of learning from my community has shown up like a, g- a good example would be if you're going to run a bookstore, right. you should probably think about hiring people who know how to work a bookstore instead of just having your designers kind of come downstairs and try and sell books. Um, so, so we definitely got a real education in what it means to run a bookstore and how it means to hold space and and to have community. The, The biggest lesson I think was that you really, you really don't have to run a conventional design studio. Right. Uh, and this lesson, this lesson doesn't begin with me at all. It begins in the very first examination of design studios that I, that I came up with. I was looking at um, Abbott Miller and Ellen Lupton, 
and their design studio, design lighting research. And I was really compelled by what they were doing as authors, as authors of books and makers of products. And I'm continuously sort of excited by um, the work. The, they're the, the guys in Queens, um, uh, Carlson Vilker, who okay. are, have an ice cream shop inside of their design studio that's open on weekends. You know, I I think that they also understand community at a super high level and that in, in Ridgewood Queens, if you're on their block, if you're a kid on their block, you know, them as the ice cream people, you don't necessarily know them as a design studio. And so I think when there's a problem to be solved, Mm -hmm. particularly that of connection, um, when there's community to be had designers, don't always know what to do, but they are creative enough to attempt new and interesting ideas. And I think that that's the big lesson is that design can teach us to hold space and design can teach us to use our creativity for more than just ourselves and for our our greater public good. And I'm very excited to continue to do that and encourage other people to keep on doing it. Well, I, you know, it's when we talk about using design, using our experience for public good, it's a natural segue into our next conversation. And I remember when we started talking and sharing our viewpoints on this ideas, we were a handful of people who thought this was possible. Remember that conversation about what if we could work and expand Wiki? And I remember uh, being so excited in our conversations and it was kind of our, our own little private, you know, network of we could make this happen. Now skip ahead 24 months and Rick, I'm happy to tell everybody else, Rick is an incredible part of us bringing together our AIGA Wiki Scholars Program and really allowing us to think about how could we activate a community in dynamic ways that we could both teach and train and inspire and then encourage others to teach and train and inspire to build new knowledge. Uh, Talk a little bit about, you know, you shared with me before, but what got you excited about the power of, of Wiki and designers i um i immediately got excited because i took the wiki training course during COVID, and i experienced a couple of librarians which you're gonna do if you take a wiki training course you're gonna experience librarians they are the they are the backbone of this type of work and some things that really came up for me and this is i mean this is like a how can I put it? It's kind of like a birth and a rebirth. And a, now it's a constant conversation about what systems right. are in power and how do we manage our own participation in these systems. And it's impossible for me to see Wikipedia as anything but the world's largest resource right. for online research. And and the the concept that was given to me was why don't we attempt to dilute the sort of dominant authority of Wikipedia from being predominantly, you know, white males? And how can we change that so that the resource is open to and relevant to other other people that they can see themselves in the resource called Wikipedia and also they can add and edit and contribute to it long-term. And the only way to do that is to take the training, practice, have things to put into it, have have a criticism, meaning go into it, edit it, attempt to um, make something more true than it was originally, to attempt to influence a topic or a theme or, or a biography there. And so my initial inspiration was that. The fact that we, as an organization, meaning I'm a longtime member of AIGA, and that we as an institution kind of suffered some of the really interesting indignities of being being there at a time when the history wasn't told correctly, that the AIGA had an opportunity to change that. I was like, well, if I have this guy Benny's ear, because you were fairly new in the job, right, right. If, if if I have this guy Benny's ear, maybe Benny will 
take this opportunity and start to walk, work with it and walk with it and see if we can change it. And eventually we found the resources and, and the time to do it. But it was really one of those things that I said, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy project for me to conceive of because the teachers at Wiki um, EDU were so good and they were so amazing to learn from that I was like, I would love to introduce other designers to this. Um, since then, I've, I've learned that two of my good friend designers and teachers are now doing um, library studies work. And then right. the, the cohort that we were working with, several of them are still in community, still talking about how to change Wikipedia and how to take that into the classroom. So I'm pretty happy about what happened. It's been amazing to watch and the notes that we receive, the articles that have come up of those people who are inspired by the work that we're doing and are training other trainings and finding other spaces. I know we're going to have people coming together in Seattle as well, working on expanding biographies as well. And kind of the yeah. work keeps on, keeps on working. So, you know, we asked this one question Ed, and we were putting questions together. Um, I can tell this is kind of the perfect question between Vinny and Rick. And I'm just going to look down and say it. The question is, why design followed by why not design? And I could tell that that was kind of mediated in our in our conversations with with Amy G and I because I I can hear I can hear your voice saying why, and I can hear me saying why not, and vice versa. And I, I was like, there's nothing else to the question, just as a prompt for us to discussion. When we think about our world today, you know, why? Why design? Why is design powerful? And the other counter question, why shouldn't it be included? And think about, and I, and I want to extend just beyond just the world today, but we think about creating futures. Um, why, why not design is pretty easy. Right. Um, and the why not design is because it has participated in so many harmful systems and has participated in so many ways to create the world that we have now. Something right. which some people will call an inheritance, but some people, some people are still alive for its creation in the sense of some new, newer systems that marginalize people and that affect people's lives negatively. And design as an action, you know, oh, 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 you know what? Right. This is cool because I wrote something on this recently. Right here. All right, nice. I'll read, I'll read from here. I think this might answer the question or, or maybe create more questions. Design might be the human action that participates in the creation of most things, including products, curricula, experiences, teams, frameworks, policies, and systems. Significant at a global scale, protecting, injuring, or disrupting all life on this planet. These actions are defined by the presence or absence of concerns and awareness of the various systems they encounter, including systems of capital and finance, labor and human rights, material resources, government, and our ever-changing ecology. These systems and their various intersections should be an area of vital concern for designers and anyone else thinking about how to proceed. This is an introduction to having concerns for individuals negotiating with systems that operate with assumptions about their impact and bias in their action. And, and this document is a document that I just created, like just before I jumped on the road for this trip, but it's an expansion. Oh, wow. uh, it's an expansion of this ethics document that I've been working on for a few years. And so this will come to Seattle. I, I'll bring a stack of. I was going to ask you, like, are, you bring, are you bringing us? I need one. And yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the, the why not design is because it, it is so powerful and right. it is being uh, deployed without the greatest amount of care and the greatest amount of concern and connection, specifically the idea of connection and collaboration. Mm -hmm. And then why design is because design also has the tools inside of itself to repair that. 
And, right. and when I say repair that, I mean repair the process by which things are made so that they're more inclusive, repair the mechanisms by which things are made, meaning right. that they are looking at resource management at the center of most things instead of just at the sort of it's available and abundant, therefore we use it and therefore we right. get away with it. You know, things like that, ideas like that. Um, and so, so it, it seems to me like design can resolve right. the challenges if it is deployed in a honest, collaborative, and conscientious manner. But if it is simply a growth mechanism, uh, shut it down. Shut it down, burn it down. I'm done. If it's only a mechanism for growth, shut it down and burn it down. So in in our discussion, you mentioned, struck with the, the notion of design and a reparative nature, a restorative nature, yeah. and a replenishing nature. How do you, in, in your own life and practice, find those mo moments to restore and replenish? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that, like, uh, sometimes people ask this question in, like, a job interview or something, like, hey, how do you blow off steam? Yeah. And it's sort of like, that's not, that, that can't be the, the, that can't be the most interesting question. But, but when we talk about repair and restore, I always think that like, if you've got a project, if you've got an idea that's worthy of doing right. in the first place, isn't it worthy of also looking at the history of that idea and to see whether or not there is some action that restores power to the people who were marginalized? Isn't there some opportunity to repair damage that things that have been done previously? Like, can we behave in a way that is both restorative and reparative as well as something that creates? Right. Because like I said, growth, you could, I mean, you can count me out of growth, but what you can count me into is repair and, um, and you can count me into an action that acknowledges people at all levels right. instead of just acknowledges people with capital. And I think that like what I do is I, I try and think of how to behave and how to have my family behave and my, and my community behave in ways that are collaborative and helpful towards each other. And so, so, you know, it's a whole life, it's a whole thing. Um, but I think, I think that's what we train people in our community to do. And when I say that, I mean like the people who are in our store, you know, like we have booksellers, we have designers, we have our family, we have an impact on the planet. We have a, you know, we have things that we buy and sell and do. Right. And we're really just looking at how do we do it in a way that's really respectful of um, the places that we are, the people that right. we live. Yeah. And it doesn't prioritize capital. So you, you spoke a little bit about your loop. Uh, share with our folks what is what is your loop? So if you start off in Denver, what's what's next? What's the what's the Rick <laughs> journey? Um, the I mean, and you don't have Denver to give is the a location of the Batcave. I'm not asking for the secret location of the Batcave. Just to... <laughs> let's just say that, like, um, I just got done with a meeting in Milan with letterpress printers, the letterpress workers group. And I'm honored to be a part, invited to that. It's where letterpress printers from around the world get together and share and talk about printing and talk about uh, their own situations and their various geographies. I have a good friend, um, Marcos, who's from uh, Sao Paulo, who came to Milan and we sat together, we did some collage together, we worked, we worked some things out, we shared, we talked. Um, and we talk about politics and we talk about other things too. But, you know, to be in community with people and to be with people's families sometimes, to meet their wives and children, it's really just beautiful. Um, the, the destination before there was Portugal. There's a small community of people in Portugal that I care about deeply. And um, I'm a 
uh, I'm, I'm repairing with my partner a pile of rocks to be the okay. place that we will eventually die. Um, and that's a really interesting project to do a construction project in a country you don't live in, in a language you don't speak. That's like super challenging, but we've got that challenge in us. Um, and then, you know, various workshops and things like that around Europe, because uh, there are, there are places out here that love to have inventive and creative letterpress grenades to come do workshops. And so I'll spend a couple of months um, on the road every fall. And then in the spring of next year, I actually am going to be stationary. I'm going to be completely still in Clarksville, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was awarded the Austin P. ACUF chair position um, for the spring semester of 2023. And so I'll be teaching design history at Austin P. State University in, in Clarksville, Tennessee, all, all next spring semester. And so it just changes from year to year. Uh, the loop is that I love to come to Europe and back because we're hoping that um, we can establish like our final resting place, if you will, in Europe. Um, I'm a British expatriate, come to America, and since Brexit happened, I have to repatriate myself to the continent in some way. And so, you know, that's my biggest challenge right now is to find options for my family and for myself to repatriate to Europe when, when I'm ready to die. Because right now, America won't let me die with anything. It's just terrible. It'll suck all the money out of me for sure. Well, you'll have to keep me posted on what happens in Portugal, but count me in on visiting you next spring when you're still. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Count me in. I'm ready to roll. So, so we're going to, we're going to mix it up a little bit here and, you know, we're going to have our very first hyper visual fireside chat. So, yes. So we're going to have a few rapid fire questions for you, my friend. I think you might be ready for them. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I think you might be ready for it. So they're going to seem simple on the surface, but nothing with us is ever simple. So we'll have fun with that. So my first question for you, favorite visual artist. Uh, okay. So it's, it, it's a super big problem space because, um, I've had this very long relationship with Kazimir Malevich and, uh, and all of these tremendous artists that come from the Russian avant-garde, which is roughly the turn of the century, turn of the last century into right. the, into the thirties. So I have a tremendous relationship with Malevich. And the reason why I have a tremendous relationship with Malevich is because Malevich kind of captures a, a beautiful piece of what is possible by talking about the non-objective world right. and the possible infusion of every feeling, right. every possible human feeling into a piece of geometry because a piece of geometry is a very human element right. to be discovered and so on and so forth. But Malevich and, um, his progeny, like all the people that came from Russia at that time, right. I still have tremendous things to learn from them. And my work is, is deeply influenced by the kinds of questions that they were asking at the time that communism was coming into play. So really a lot of questions about class struggle, a lot of questions about the proletariat. And I really enjoy the allegory, like the idea that I'm working in and enjoying a conversation about class struggle from another continent in another country, but I'm also embedded in a conversation about class struggle where I live and work. Awesome. So next question is favorite design. <sighs> See, I told you these, these are very straightforward questions, but They're I don't sort of straightforward, straightforward but right. <laughs> so what's fair to say is that like, having your awareness change right. about design is one of the most exciting things that can happen. And my awareness changed profoundly when people started talking about, and this is, this has got a lot to do with Silas Monroe of poly mode. And it's got a lot to do with the BIPOC history course that 
that he ran during the pandemic. And, and the guys at Polymode are amazing. The, the people that they brought together, the amount, the, the sheer volume of people, talented human beings that they brought together for that course. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that I learned in that course changed my perspective. And most importantly, I would say that that was the second or third time that I got to meet Saki. Mm-hmm. And the African alphabets book started to take on new shape for me. Right. The entire conversation about Saki's work and the African alphabets project. Um, I mean, really, I'll just say this favorite design right now would hands down be the course, the BIPOC history course of Polymode from 2020 that okay. was done. It's an inexpensive course to sign up for, but every lesson in that course um, changed my perspective and changed my appreciation for um, so many people's work. So I'm a lifetime learner. I'm a lifelong learner. And so learning is always my favorite thing. I think that's, that's it right there. That's awesome. And definitely shout out to Silas, who's a friend and contributor for AIGA as well. Um, here we go. Favorite book quote. Um, I can't say it on the air. It's, it's, it's improper, but I will say this. The most important part of Allen Ginsberg's Howl is not necessarily just the poem Howl. If okay. you go to the back of the book, it's the next piece of writing after Howl. And it's one of my favorite things to read because it's, it's difficult to imagine someone saying it without yelling it at the top of their lungs. Right. And so I love the idea of reading someone's vitriol, someone's absolutely possessed bitterness and anger. Um, and so it would be a portion of Ellen Ginsberg's Howl, okay. which, which, every, which every person should own at least one copy of. And if you don't own several you know, let's, let's try and get that. On let's your, try to make that happen. But, there, but I'll tell you what a close second is. What do you got? A really, a really close second is uh, page eight of Flatland by Edwin Abbott Abbott. Uh, it's a book that's been in print since 1896. And it is a really interesting uh, sort of Euclidean geometric uh, treatise, but it's connected to Victorian class structure. And, uh, and it's, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant piece of writing and it's been around for over a hundred years. And it's page eight is probably my favorite page okay. or, or, you know, depending on the, the part that you're, the part that you're in, but it's on the inhabitants of Flatland, and it describes how people are seen as geometry. So it's kind of exciting. Pretty cool. Well, before I ask the, the next question, I'm going to share this little aside uh, because I, I know you absolutely love books. I know you adore books. And I remember you said this to me one time. I sent you a small thank you note of the book and you called me up and you said, how bold and daring of you to send a book to the book guy. Well played. <laughs> and that's yeah. that stayed with me so warm because I knew I was taking a risk that you probably already had this book or had an opinion on this book or whatever facing there but it felt right to send to you at that moment. And so, but my question for us is when did you first realize that you fell in love with books? Um, I was raised with um, my own encyclopedia set. It wasn't exactly the right year. It was like a couple of years earlier. We weren't, we weren't wealthy enough to, to buy that, that edition, but I was raised with my own encyclopedia set. I was raised with a copy of the Bible, the Quran, um, and the Torah, I was raised with Grey's Anatomy. I was raised with so many important books. And my parents, just like many other Black parents, would just say, there's no such thing as bored. Go pick up the book. Right. And, and um, they, also, they also insisted that I read the complete works of Shakespeare, Chaucer, Dickens, and Bronte. Okay. And, um, and so that happened in my like early years too. 
I got that done before I was 12 years old. And so everything like to me became either really weird language that I didn't completely understand like Chaucer or it began to make sense by the time I was 12 or 13, which was Shakespeare because I was going to the theater or it made immediate sense, which was Bronte who's, you know, uh, writing is totally accessible for all ages and it's not an issue. Um, and then my life has been like a Dickensian novel, right? It's full of tragedy and it's misfortune and fortune and bravery and all sorts of experiences and people have come into my life. And my favorite, my favorite Dickens book is going to be the, the life and times of, of Nicholas Nickleby, which, which is a really remarkable document all by itself. But my life sometimes just feels quite Dickensian. You know, mm-hmm. It feels really connected to, to story and to, love and loss and you know you could say that dickens kind of had an interesting template probably influenced by bollywood you know like by indian storytelling like massive narratives decade-long narratives you know that sort of thing and being an english person how could he not have been um influenced by uh indian indian poetry right well the next space and one of the connection points that we have is in your time in dc was all about music. So give me your favorite song lyric. Oh, gosh, my favorite song lyric. There's so many song lyrics. So I cannot say, again, because it's so absolutely filthy, I cannot say (laughs) my favorite song lyric on on the air, but (laughs) I will say it's from John Giorno, and the song is called Scum and Slime, and look it up. It's an amazing, amazing song. But... But besides that, the punk, the punk anthems from the eighties, you know, I, um, there's a, there's a a band called marginal man. And, um, this is really interesting because marginal man's drummer is Kenny Onaway, who was the son of former, uh, Mm -hmm. States, state Senator, um, on a way. So, so because, because of, of DC being what it was sometimes like the senator's kids were like punks and, and so Kenny, um, was part of the band, but, but what I found fun about this lyric was it's, it's a simple lyric. He goes, if I say something that you don't like, think about it, I might be right. <laughs> um, if I say something, um, just, uh, just, just hear me out. Right. I just might know what I'm talking about. And, right. and it's kind of a cool lyric. And at the same time, it's asking for people to be better listeners of each other, but in a super punk anthem sort of way. Right. So, you know, but, but there's a lot of good songs in, in DC punk rock. Um, but this, but this lyric also, as long as we're talking about music, this lyric is, is top notch for DC lyric. It's uh, MasterCard, Visa, American Express. I don't know nothing about no credit cards because cash is, is the best. best. We need and that's, money. Of course, talking about dollar, big, dollar bill. That's big Tony. That's big Tony from from Trouble Funk. And so that to me, like, you can't talk about DC music without talking about um, punk rock and Trouble Funk. And so to me, those are just those are my big favorite things right there. I, I love that instinctively. You started that lyric. And without even thinking about it, my, my DC-ness always shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's great. I mean, how could you not love a city that has its own musical form? You know, New Orleans, DC, you know, it, it, important it really, stuff. Really the space. So your daughter alluded to your evolution. And so I'm going to ask this question in that context. What sparked your imagination today? You know, what, what are the things you, you've seen a lot, you've created a lot. What really sparks your imagination today? Um, it it kind of lights me up when I see acts of courage. It can't, it doesn't get any better than that. Watching someone else be courageous 
watching someone else speak truth to power, watching someone else fight for someone else, watching, watching people do brave things. It's the highest form of encouragement. And so <clears throat> I've evolved through my own grief. I've evolved through my own experience, but I also am like witnessing acts of courage right. at a scale that just blows my mind all the time. So, so it's, it doesn't just spark creativity. I mean, it sparks like purpose, right? Sparks purpose. And, and I, I, there's nothing higher. It's so true and so powerful. So as we wrap up, I'd love to ask you, what have been your favorite journeys as of recently? You know, we think about it, uh, our life is a journey, but it's made up of journeys inside of journeys. What, what's one road that you've taken recently that's, that's continued this love of creativity and inspiration? What's been your favorite journey? I'm still negotiating um, uh -huh. where I am with it because it's difficult, but uh, writing. Mm. I'm, I'm learning how to write. I know it sounds really silly because uh, sometimes you think, well, how do you get by without writing? But I think lots of us get by without writing and right. without writing something serious, without writing something for other people's eyes. And so right now I'm writing and I'm learning how to write with and um, collaborate with, with people in writing. So this is my latest journey. And I'm hoping that it opens up new doors and opportunities for me. Um, I'm not sure if we need any more design critics, but I do know that the act of criticism is also like an act of observation and right. caring. And uh, I like to see it as a way of thinking about not just what we will do, but what we have already done, you know? So, so I'm not sure if I, if I need to position myself as a design critic of any kind, but I do like to comment on and talk right. about what I see and, and what I think the future might be. Um, and to, to that end, I've kind of decided that like over this next year, my right. lecture is called what design might be. And, and it's has the same sort of front end of, right. of the lecture, but each time I kind of swap in, two new projects and talk about two projects in a very sort of case case study heavy way right. and try and help people see how broad design is and how broad a design practice can be. And so I'm kind of excited to share um, both big and small projects, but things that are really broad in their definition and how they fit into design as, as a practice, as, as they fit into my practice, you know? So writing is the biggest adventure of recent of recent years. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you, how have you, what advice do you have for people from managing that pivot from writing and ideas as a personal private concern to flipping it to then opening it up for others to be a part of? Cause I know you've been an act thinker forever. And so th these ideas have been on the inside, but now you're, you're really kind of exploring and opening them up and sharing them a bit more. Um, I think, I think Michael Beirut said this once and it really, I really held it close to me. And that was like, don't be afraid to have mentors. Mm -hmm. And my addition to that is, and don't tell them that they're your mentors, just be good to each other in the relationship. Right. The M word always freaks people out. Right. When someone says that I'm supposed to be their mentor, I get freaked out a little bit. But if somebody wants to be in community with me and spend time with me and learn with me and, and be with me, I'm kind of okay with that. But the mentor thing kind of feels like a lot of responsibility. Don't be afraid to have them, but also be a little bit more stealthy than just kind of jump up on their shit and be like, yo, I want you to be my mentor. Because because we need mentors, everybody needs one. Um, I certainly have, I sit at the feet of the master over and over and over again, 
but but I think it's like don't let the process of getting a mentor dissuade you from having one. That's Just right. simply be in community with people or, and or or to our point, recognizing those moments and those people in our lives that serve in a mentorship moment, whether you recognize it or not. You know, you go through the journey, you realize that that you've been having these conversations that have been edifying and reinforcing and serving that purpose about the label. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think you have to, I do think you have to be in service of the relationship. I do think that there is at least your own awareness right. is important mm-hmm. um, because, because it can be, um, it can be extractive and, and it can be painful for other people. So, so having the awareness that like you are in a relationship with somebody and that it is fueling you is good. And then being aware of how other people need fuel as well is good. Um, it, it, maybe it's just, maybe it's just straight up old mentorship, but, but what it is now is more subtle Mm-hmm. and less extractive and um, more focused on like how we can be there for and with each other. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a balance. It's, I mean, I don't even like the word balance, but because it's just what people say when they want those things. But, um, but for me, it's like energetically super important to be both learning and teaching at the same time. This is incredible. We talk about bringing back together and and reconnection and relationships. So I think it's our perfect way to end to talk about our upcoming design conference in Seattle that we felt, you know, we talked about it a lot and felt that you were the perfect person to get us started in a generative way as we come back together and moving and expanding our host that we have along with yourself and the work that we're doing and bringing people back in. We've gotten such kind of positive feedback of people wanting this moment to get away from the screens and get back to coming together. So what, what are you looking forward to most? Oh boy. Um, I got good coffee for you. I got that for you. <laughs> I, I'm going to need it. I I'm looking forward to, to being with, with, the community of designers that AIGA kind of brings together. I'm looking forward to that. No answer, no doubt about it. I've only missed maybe I don't know three or four conferences in the last 25 years. Um, right now, the idea of reconnect it's it's pretty retail as the title goes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that there's going to be a hundred conferences called Reconnect. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't say, you know, like the title that I really wanted for this conference, which was, you know, last year we called the conference A Brief History of Now. Right. And, you know, like, I think this conference should be called Now What? <laughs> um, the, the concept of what we did last year by bringing like a, a really awesome group of people together right. to share sort of situationally how we've arrived at this place and sort of what this place looks like and what a reckoning on design and design thinking looks like and how people are sort of tired of post-it notes that tell us how the world's going to be. I mean, there's a bunch of that. And now we're at the next level. It's a little bit more connected to, do you understand the long-term impact of your work? Are you connected to your values as a person? Do you understand ethics, even though the United States has gone so far out of its way to disrupt any ethical conversation that could occur, right? Like, do we have a grounding for what we do as a community of people and as a profession? And I think that because we're talking about time, because we were talking about space, because we're talking about human beings, um, and because we're here to honor, again, like nothing happens without honoring my ancestors and the, yours. Right. Because we're here to kind of do that, I think that this conference is at a point in time where it's like, okay, 
what might AIGA be able to create as a conversation that is about leadership and design now? Right. And how is leadership and design everybody's business? Right. How one person's actions make a difference and how we reconnect to our values. Design has its own set of values, whether we're aware of them or not. Design has its own set of deeply held values. Right. And it doesn't need to have the values of late stage capitalism infuse it or direct it or manipulate it. And I think that at this conference, what we're trying to do is give designers as much autonomy in this very complicated world as possible, the chance to make their own decisions, the chance to bring their practice into focus and their purpose into focus. And so I know that the things that I'm hoping to see and learn from are going to do that for me um, because there's an incredible amount of talent on the table. Yeah. Um, And and I really hope everybody else enjoys it too, because I'm I'm going to sessions to learn. And, you know, I'm going to be attending to this as a, as an attendee, not just as a um, a person who's, who's organizing. Well, that's a perfect way. To, to end our conversation today. You just, you just put it out there for, for you. But as I said, a depart, departure point, thank you all for joining us. Rick, this has been incredible. To It's fun for me to share the type of conversations that you and I have when it's just the two of us with the rest of the world. Um, yeah. it's been, I thank you just personally for your support and leadership and going with me with crazy ideas and sharing with me crazy ideas and us putting our crazy together and thinking that we can change the world um, because that's the purpose of design. As I said before, as a starting point, yes, Rick is a designer. Yes, he's a master of letterpress, but Rick is so much more. Leader, teacher, uh, challenger, and good friend. Student. Student. Student, yes. Lifelong learner and troublemaking friend. So yeah. Thank you. you know, there's a there's a lyric that I want to put in your in your head just before we leave. Uh-uh. What do you have? There's a there's a most theft song, and someone says, Hey most, what's hip hop gonna be like in the future? And most says, you know, it's whatever we are in the future is what hip hop's gonna be in the future. If we're smoked out, it's gonna be smoked out. If we're real, it's gonna be real. If we're together, we're gonna be together. And that's, I mean, in some sense, I really love this idea about design is a collection of human beings that practice design, right? It's nothing more than that. And when we get together, hopefully what we'll do is we'll find out how to do it in community with other designers and also the planet and the people that live on this planet. Well, to that, I say amen. And we look forward to seeing everybody in Seattle next month. Thank you all for joining us. Rick, thank you as always. And this has been a fireside chat with AIGA Design. Thank you all. Cheers. Bye for now.